welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 23 of the Madden America podcast. This week we share the time between two interviewees. A little later I'll be talking with entrepreneur and author Brett Francis about her work. But first I'm honoured to have been able to interview Dr. Noelle Hunter. Dr. Hunter is a clinical psychologist in New York and an advocate for the rights of people diagnosed with mental disorders. She believes in a trauma-informed, humanistic, person-centered approach to understanding problems in living. She has trained in community mental health, state hospital, residential and college counseling settings. Dr. Hunter is on the board of directors for the Hearing Voices Network USA, the International Society for Ethical Psychiatry and Psychology, and the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy. She is an associate editor for the peer-reviewed journal Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry, and has been a guest editor for Asylum magazine. Noel, thank you so much for talking with me today for the Madden America podcast. I wanted to start by asking about you and your background and what led you to becoming a clinical psychologist and therapist. Well, first of all, hi. <laughs> it's nice to be here. What was my journey coming to be a therapist? And a, Well, I always had an ambivalent relationship, I think, with the mental health field, even when I was a kid. I think it's always been a part of my life due to various family members who were um, kind of wrapped up in it. And seeing how a lot of abuse and a lot of uh, oppression and, 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 and trauma was being absolutely ignored by mental health professionals, um, while at the same time people were being uh, put on heavy loads of medications and told that it really was their problem and it was in their head. And I remember being as young as 11 or 12 and thinking, well, this doesn't seem right. Something seems very wrong about this. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, when I went to college, uh, psychology was one of my degrees. I also was getting a degree in religious studies. And I think it was around that time that I discovered there wasn't much of a difference between what was going on in the history of some of these religions and what was going on in uh, the mental health field. So I did, promptly decided to give up on all of it. And I moved to New York City and pursued theater for <laughs> about eight years. <laughs> Um, and said, I wanted nothing to do with any of this stuff. And for whatever reason, it kept eating at me and I kept wanting to go back to school. I, I something drew me to it. I enjoy writing and, um, somewhere along those lines, I ended up having my own, uh, kind of breakdown. It was probably actually about my fourth or fifth breakdown, but it was the worst and one that, got me involved for the first time in mental health services. And it was a very, very terrifying time. Um, I, I was terrified of my own mind. I was terrified of what was happening around me. But more than anything, I think I was terrified of what was happening um, with so-called treatment. Anytime I tried to talk about what was happening, I was met with threats of being taken off to the hospital or... So I had to lie, but then I still was trying to reach out because I was so desperate and I didn't know how to get the help I needed um, without being punished for it was what it felt like at the time. And every time I would try to say, you know, I think that some of the trauma I've experienced in my life might be related to some of these things I'm experiencing, I was met basically with the same response every time 
well, one of two responses was either that's because you need to be on drugs or uh, you're making it all up for attention. And um, I just obviously continued to get worse until I managed to, uh, I feel, get very lucky and randomly was assigned, basically, a clinician who was different, who questioned mainstream mental health services and who, for the first time, treated me like I was just simply a human being and didn't look his nose down at me and didn't scoff at what didn't make sense to him. And he helped me and uh, he helped me a lot. And so I decided that's what I want to do. I want to, first of all, fight back and say, this is wrong what's happening. People should not be allowed to get away with, nobody should ever have to go through what I went through. And I was lucky um, in many ways. And I want to be also that person who is different or provide somebody a different experience. And so I went back to school. Thank you. And Noel, was it the case that your own experiences of psychiatry led you to wanting to provide trauma-informed therapy and to practice in a different way? Well, certainly my experiences that I uh, had make me want to help people in a different way for sure. But I think the idea of trauma-informed services is like many things, is a catchphrase, right? People tend to say, oh, that makes sense. Uh, But even that is quite problematic because most of the things I think that people come in having experienced in their lives and that might lead to extraordinary amounts of distress is not always some big, huge event that somebody could objectively say, this is trauma, Uh, but rather it's the subtle things that happen day in and day out and the the toxic family dynamics and the belief systems that start to become internalized and the confusion and, and and these things will break a person down over time. Um, So when I say, when I speak to trauma informed services in my mind, it's really much more about, you know, people are suffering for a reason and it needs to be contextualized and we need to be coming at it from the perspective that, this person has been through stuff and there's a reason that they're suffering. Uh, even if you don't like the person or if they, if you're confused by it or it doesn't make sense to you, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt and know there's a reason and there's meaning behind it. And that's what our job should be. It should not be trying to fix a person or get them to just stop being the way that they're being as if it was that easy. And that strikes me as very different to the mainstream approach of diagnosing someone and thereby saying, you fulfill these criteria, therefore you're the same as all the other people that have this diagnosis. I've heard others say that their experiences weren't taken into account or even acknowledged. I I totally agree with you. I think, though, that part of the bigger problem is not so much people uh, like yourself who feel, oh, you're ignoring my experiences, but rather who get given a diagnosis and feel validated. And that's very common. They, they, give, they get a diagnosis and they feel somebody finally recognizes my suffering and is doing so in a way that's not blaming me or telling me that it's just a, my moral character that I could just get over it. And it's like we have this bizarre dichotomy where it's either you're sick and have no responsibility and can't help anything and it's a brain disease and it's genetics or you're just a lazy 
uh, attention-seeking, whatever other words might come to mind, moral defect who just needs to get over it. And there's just zero in-between. There's zero compassion. There's zero um, room for difference or individuality or openness to the nuances of life. (laughs) Absolutely. And Noel, I would imagine that in your practice, you have interactions with people that have been traumatized by mainstream psychiatry. And I've heard others say that they subsequently avoid any kind of therapy or potential help. I just wondered if you'd had that experience and how you might go about building up trust with someone that may feel damaged and harmed by their treatment. Well, I think anybody who's been traumatized uh, by somebody who is in a trusted position of authority, whether it's a parent figure or a teacher or clinician, um, is a person who has extraordinary difficulty trusting. And I find that it's very difficult to um, get such an individual to engage in therapy in general, because understandably, they expect you to harm them. So I think that that's actually a common thing that I come across in working with more of a trauma-based population in general. Uh, More specifically, though, to people who have been harmed in the system, um, I don't tend to come across that a whole lot. I think just by the nature of where I work, um, I think what I've actually come across much more often are the people who've internalized their experiences in the system and who... um, who actually get quite angry at me if I do not treat them as if they are sick or uh, do not use medical terminology with them or I imply in any way, shape, or form that uh, there might be question to this uh, model that they've come to believe. Uh, that that is way more frequently my, my experience. But to try to answer your question, I think, is... Uh, you know, building trust is 99%, I think, of a therapist's job, any kind of clinician, really, is figuring out what does this person need, allowing the person to be angry at me, allowing the person to hate me, and not feeling like somehow they owe me something because I'm this benevolent, helpful figure, uh, but rather providing this space where a person can have all of their messy feelings and be confused, and we can try to figure it out together I guess. Again that does strike me as a major difference to the mainstream because in my own experience I've been labeled non-compliant for disagreeing with my psychiatrist but the chance to have a mature discussion where you can air your feelings and discuss different viewpoints I think that's probably quite healthy. I I like to think so. Um, Also I think that people who have the skepticism and are afraid of stepping back into the system are also healthy. (laughs) I know I sure have that skepticism and and have in the past, uh, you know, before I I did find my own help, um, went to numerous people and and was shot down every time. And I have very little trust in in the mental health system and in clinicians in general, um, even though I do know some who are fantastic at the same time. Thank you. I'd like to go on, if that's okay, to talk about your recent article on Mad in America entitled Dear Mental Health Professionals, Please Stop Defending Yourselves and Listen, which was bold and powerful in its analysis of the reasons why critical or questioning views are often discredited. 
In particular, you noted that quite often the response of the medical establishment to criticism is that our opinions are dangerous and uninformed, and often that's how the views of those with lived experience are invalidated. I just wondered firstly how you found your colleagues' reactions to that article, as you asked some very challenging questions that required a great deal of self-reflection, and I wondered how that was reflected back to you. Well, honestly, I don't know that people who the article was aimed at would have necessarily gotten very far in the article. Um, uh, so I haven't had a whole lot of uh, feedback from individuals who it would probably be aimed at, uh, to be honest, which is expected too. It's, I think that this is a common thing where there's an oppressed group speaking up to another group that may not intentionally be creating any harm and nonetheless is unwilling or unable to see the harm that they do, in fact, create. And so, you know, they feel guilty, and their immediate reaction is to say, you're attacking me, as opposed to considering that there might be something to feel guilty about. And I laugh every time when a psychiatrist, because I'm a, I'm a psychologist, so I am technically uh, at a doctor level, and so there aren't a whole lot of uh, specialties that are above my education level anyways. Uh, and psychiatry happens to be one of them. And so it's only psychiatrists that will come back at me and tell me, well, I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't have a medical degree. To which I just I just do not know how to respond at that point. Because um, <laughs> it's laughable. I've gone to school for just as long. I don't I don't understand where they even can begin to justify, and not to say that I have any more knowledge than anybody else, I'm not saying that by any means, but for them to justify that I somehow don't have the knowledge makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, I guess that it just goes to the heart of that issue of whether we're dealing with a medical problem or not. Well, that's true. That is that is certainly true, and if you were to look at it and say these are medical problems, then what could I possibly know? And yet, it's a dead end argument is what it is. It's, well, you can't possibly know because this is a medical issue. And I say, well, it's not a medical issue. And here's all the reasons why. And they say, well, you don't have the authority to make such a statement because you're not a medical professional. So it's a circular argument that never has an end. Well, it seems almost like an existential debate for psychiatry. If these issues are not medical problems, then what's the purpose of psychiatry? And that seems to result in vitriolic defence by some. And I think that speaks volumes about how exposed the psychiatrists that have questioned themselves feel on this. Oh, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, this is yet just another ideology. And religion has been trying to tackle human suffering since the beginning of time. And any kind of religion that comes about uh, to, with their explanation, if somebody questions it, it threatens the entire platform that the religion is based on and uh, is met with sometimes outright violence uh, and sometimes even within the mental health field with outright violence, right? You question the authority of the psychiatrist and you get mandatory ECT or your drug dosage gets raised or you're labeled with anisognosia and said, well, that's clearly you disagree with me, so that must be that's evidence of your illness right there. And, and even for uh, psychologists, too, it's like, well, if what we're talking about here is human connection and relationships and 
life experiences and if peers can be just as helpful as anybody else, why does anybody ever need a doctorate degree to uh, be a clinician and to, to help people? And personally, I don't think that they do. I don't, I think a doctorate is a complete and utter waste unless you're doing research. And so I've, I've seen that existential angst uh, also within psychology as well. It's not just psychiatrists. Well, I guess that as soon as you start to become definite on any perspective, you're at risk of not being open to new ideas, and that's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because certainty feels good <laughs> to all of us. And yet, it's, it, there's very little in life that we can truly be certain about. I'm going to say that the idea, and I know it pops up on Madden America frequently, of the drugs are the problem, and... Um, that's definitely not a position that I personally hold. Uh, I don't care what kind of drugs people find helpful in their life, um, with the exception of SSRIs, which I think are just poison pills. But other than that, you know, if somebody finds a drug that's helpful, then great, they should be allowed to, to take it, use it, legal or not, with informed consent, of course. The oppression, though, that is inherent within the system and the forced treatment and the uh, insistence upon the necessity of drugs and um, the lying that goes on and the corruption and the uh, pushing out of alternative ideas, that is a much greater dynamic that is not specifically related to drugs. The, the drug issue is a symptom, if you will, of the deeper underlying power dynamics that are existing within every mental health uh, position, even in peer support. And Noel, if we look to the future and we wanted to support the most people who are struggling with their emotional or psychological distress, what should we change to make that a reality? There are clearly limitations with the psychiatric model and probably with the psychological model too. So what should we do differently? That's the problem, isn't it? We, we all know how to complain, but where are the answers? I, I, I certainly can't claim to have the answers myself. I think that, like I said, these some of these dilemmas and some of these problems have existed since the beginning of humanity um, of how to deal with extreme suffering. Well, I guess the model or approach that you use working with your clients, that must feel comfortable to you, or it must feel that it's the way that you would have liked to have been supported yourself. Is that the way we should be moving? Should we be trauma-focused? Should we wrestle mental health care away from medicine? Well, I have no doubt about the idea that the medical model needs to be abolished in every way, shape, or form. Uh, there's just there's nothing helpful about that, and it's incredibly harmful. Even if we are able to take away the reason why it existed in the first place, aside from, of course, corrupt uh, values, but the idea that people want to protect their families, people don't want to deal with the messiness of the world, people don't want to deal with the very reasons that m most people are in the states that they are, are suffering the states they are because of emotions or um, e experiences that are intolerable in some way. And the medical model provides an out. It provides ongoing avoidance of really having to look at and deal with the messiness. And I think that that's something to not be dismissed or condescended to. I think it's a very real dilemma um and how to be able to navigate that is is very very difficult as um as far as the model that i might use i don't think therapy is for everybody i think it's very useful for some um and not so useful for others and 
my approach is basically just based on relationship and looking at relationships and providing a safe space and helping a person better understand themselves in a way that's not judgmental. Um, it's very the opposite of concrete. And for a lot of people, that's very difficult to sit with, which is I personally tend to think is exactly the thing that one needs to do is sit with that discomfort. But it's hard in a society where we're told all the time that you know happiness is just another purchase away or uh, your all problems should be fixed immediately, whatever that may be. And is that connection and that meeting someone where they are, is that something that you would have wanted yourself when you were struggling? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I do think that that's what was ultimately very helpful for me was somebody just being very real with me and in the moments where <laughs> this person was able to not tell me what I was thinking or feeling or why I was thinking or feeling it, but instead just kind of sitting with me through it and trying to offer some insight without imposing it and valuing what I thought and valuing my perspective and considering that I might actually have something to say that is different and that it's just as valid. I think that's super important because none of us at the end of the day, not a single person on this planet has figured out life and to sit there with the arrogance and think that I've got it figured out. So let me tell you the way it is, is preposterous to me. And there's nothing helpful in that whatsoever. I can offer what I think. Maybe somebody agrees with it. Maybe they don't, but maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe none of us is right. Who knows? We have to be open to that. I think. Thank you, Noel. And I just wanted your thoughts about the equality of the therapeutic relationship, because I know from personal experience that I've been guilty of sitting in front of a medical professional and agreeing with them, not because it's the best thing for me, but because I think it's the best thing for them. And if I want them to be on my side, I should say what they want me to say rather than what I feel. Is it possible to achieve equality in a therapeutic setting, do you think? Absolutely not. Um, and I think any clinician who believes that they're in an equal relationship is being blind to what the other person is experiencing. You can try your best to be as egalitarian as possible, but at the end of the day, if you're you're in a position of power uh, as a therapist, as a doctor, as a clinician, and I think that that's something that needs to be recognized and constantly recognized instead of being turned a blind eye to. And just as you said, I think 99% of the people that I see also uh, will yes me. I and agree with me, even though I know darn well they don't agree with anything I'm saying, and will pretend they're not angry at me when they are angry at me, or are worried about my disapproval, or are worried that, that I'm going to get rid of them if they are too much of a problem for me, or they're too complicated. And for me to ignore that and pretend, well, no, we're equal, is ridiculous. Not to mention the fact that they're coming to me for help. I'm not coming to them for help, and I shouldn't be coming to them for help. They, they are not there to help me. And I think sometimes that's uh, one of the most healing things about therapy because oftentimes people have had to be in a parentified role with their parents and so don't know how to attend to their own needs or their own feelings. And to sit in a therapeutic relationship and pretend we're equal and that my feelings matter just as much as theirs is not allowing them the opportunity to really start to get to 
focus on themselves. Helping and supporting people is not easy, is it? No, 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 it's not. <laughs> Helping ourselves is not easy. Well, it heartens me, Noel, that yourself and others that I've spoken to are willing to roll their sleeves up and grind through some difficult times with clients to help them. Because it strikes me that it's all about building resilience in the individual, isn't it? Well, I think that for myself anyways, it largely comes back to my own experiences because um, it's not as if that urge doesn't arise in me to say, you shouldn't do this or you should do this or here's what I think is best for you. Uh, for, of course, those, those, those urges come up all the time, but then I have to remind myself of what it felt like when somebody was doing that to me. And the, the number of times that I was told that I couldn't do something or that what I was doing was uh, unrealistic or that I was basically at the end of the day in some way crazy. And fortunately, I'm enough of a stubborn, anti-authoritarian uh, rebel of sorts that anytime somebody would tell me I couldn't do something, I would double down on it. And- do it twice as hard and usually with with success so i just have to remind myself of those moments and say nope keep your mouth shut noel this isn't about you their journey is not yours and it's a constant effort to to keep reminding myself of that noel thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and i loved the honesty of being open about not having the answers because i hear that so infrequently i just wondered if there was anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners i don't know that i have anything burning at the top of my mind other than maybe the need for us to be able to tolerate anger also. I think that's the other piece of this whole battle and this this thing that so many of us uh, who are fighting to bring about change in some way come up against is this idea, well, you've hurt my feelings or you're not saying this in a nice way, which even if you are saying it nice, it just doesn't sometimes feel nice. And this idea that everything has to be neutral without emotion uh, is ridiculous. And people should be allowed to be angry. And being angry doesn't mean that you're crazy. So that that's what I want to say. Noel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Noel Hunter. If you'd like to find out more about her work, you can visit the website noelhunter.com. So, on now to our second interview, in which I speak to Brett Francis. Brett is a professional speaker, mental health advocate, author, and entrepreneur. Brett was herself diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome and ADHD at six years of age, leading to being medicated for over 11 years and subsequent difficulties with anxiety, depression, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. She is now passionate about supporting and encouraging open and honest discussions about mental health and disabilities and giving confidence to those struggling. Brett, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me for the Mad in America podcast. Firstly, really, I wondered if you could share with us your own experiences of the mental health system. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you, James, very much for having me on the Mad in America podcast. Uh, My experience with the mental health system is a lot different now than it was when I was younger. I was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome and severe ADHD at the age of six. And you can imagine with even though we're lacking in resources now, you can imagine how much we were lacking in resources then. So my experience with the mental health system then was that 
my parents and I, well, I guess more initiated by my parents at that time, really had nowhere to go. My dad and mom were desperate for research and and answers. So they had a lot of frustration because anytime we went to a psychiatrist, it was, here, put this six or seven-year-old on this pill, and it's an antipsychotic pill. There's no, There wasn't even a pill for Tourette's syndrome at the time that was, you know, more effective than this really hardcore antipsychotic. It's called haloperidol. So, you know, my parents did more research and, oh, maybe it's a vitamin deficiency. Maybe we can help it with minerals and healthy eating and other stuff and whatever else. And it came to a point where it was really interfering with my school and my school still didn't understand. So my parents actually had to come and sit with me because there were so many lack of resources in the mental health system for ADHD and also just the regular health system for a neurological disease like Tourette's syndrome where my parents had to come and sit with me in class because I was blurting out and yelling so bad. It was a very frustrating time for my parents, I can imagine, and also embarrassing for me. So, you know, when I was, I think, seven years old, my parents put me on that haloperidol. And basically from then on, I was on it for 11 years. And from then on, um, maybe, maybe a little less than that, but from then Every single class that I went to, I had no interest in anything. It was almost like putting a kid on with ADHD on Ritalin. It kind of changed my personality, and I got some terrible side effects with it, like sleeping through every single one of my classes. I could not keep my eyes open. I could sleep 10, 14, 16, 18 hours, and it still wasn't enough. So I was continuously frustrated with the medication that I was on. Then I had this... um, the only way I can describe it, there's an actual name for it, but I can't think of it right now. It's called a, I can't remember, so this is a D, but it's like a looking up thing where your eyes from antipsychotics go up and you continue to stare up at the ceiling and it hurts your eyes so bad, but you can't pull them down. So I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't stay in school. I always had to come home. I tried to have a nap to make it better. I couldn't even make my own supper because of this drug that I was on. So you know, my experiences before with the mental health system were frustrating. And now they're still a little frustrating because I feel that there's a huge lack in resources in our mental health system, but for different reasons. So before I just felt like, you know, mental health was pushed aside because it wasn't taken as seriously. Now that it's getting more taken seriously, I think that a lot of the troubles that we encounter is the lack of funding for research and for understanding the brain and how it works. And Brett, you were very young when you were first diagnosed, but how do you feel when you look back at those times? Because some people say that their diagnosis is liberating for them and it helps them understand their illness or disorder. But equally, many say that they find their diagnosis is a limitation. And I wondered how you felt about your own diagnoses. Well, it's absolutely changed now from what it was when it was back in the day when I was six years old, it was like it was a death sentence. You know, I was miserable. My parents told me, oh, you should tell everybody that you have Tourette's syndrome. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the movies that make fun of Tourette's, but they're all about swearing and twitching and all these misconceptions about Tourette's. And so I got bullied like you would not believe. I got shoved in lockers every day. I got... Uh, sexually abused when I was very young and I just got taken advantage of people would yell down the hall Tourette's and make fun of me I didn't have very many friends so having Tourette's syndrome was probably the worst thing that had ever happened to me at that time in my life the fact that I had a diagnosis I think that if I probably wouldn't have told people that I had Tourette's eventually they would have figured it out but maybe they wouldn't have like been so 
stone cold with bullying. And I mean, I think that people judge because they don't know, like they judge, people judge the unfamiliar and what they're afraid of. Right. But, you know, now when I look on it, I feel kind of privileged, I guess, to have my diagnoses because I wouldn't be the person that I am today with my radio show and podcast, with the TV show, my professional speaking. I would not be doing any of that had it not been for my diagnoses. And when we look at our challenges in life, I found a way to turn that around and find what opportunities lie within my mental health challenges instead of what barriers they give me. I mean, they still absolutely give me barriers, but for example, my anxiety makes me, you know, be able to take on more than one thing at a time. My ADHD makes me a wonderfully creative person. I feel a lot of passion for things and, you know, going through depressive bouts and having depression from time to time, I'm really able to be an empath and see and understand and really help people with how their own feelings are. So I have really successful relationships because of that. So, you know, I really learned to transform the way that I look about my diagnoses instead of having them cripple me, take them and turn them into an advantage. Brett, that's so empowering to see your diagnosis as a positive thing and not be limited by it. And I have so much respect for how much of your time you give to reducing the stigma around mental health and reaching out to encourage others to feel empowered, no matter what their diagnosis or what their experience is. I just wondered, was there a single experience or event that inspired you to help others and motivated you to achieve the success that you have? Or was it a gradual thing? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for such the kind words, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing as well. Um, I wouldn't say that it was one single experience. It was more of a, a combination of my childhood and being at rock bottom. So I had a miscarriage when I was uh, 19 years old, unexpected pregnancy, of course. And through that, I just hit what I felt was rock bottom where my life couldn't be any worse. So why not? try to make it better because it's still kind of getting any worse. So that was really uh, a turning point for me. And then as you know, in the next several years went on, one of the biggest experiences that contributed to it and then became a gradual thing was I lost one of my best friends to suicide in 2011. And I kept doing the, what if I could have said something different? What if I would have known more? What if I could have been his advocate? What if I could have been where I am now back then? So a lot of what I do now, he's in my memory and my heart and all the passion that I put into it is because not just to have him remembered, but because I think that suicide can be prevented. And looking back now, knowing what I know now, I think I could have changed things. And so, you know, he may still be alive. But I realized that that's probably not a healthy way to think. And, you know, going through the grief counseling and stuff that I did, you're not supposed to be thinking about, oh, it could have been different. I could have saved him. But he has really empowered me to help other people. And that was one of the biggest turning points for me. Another really big thing that made a difference for me from when I was a kid, and I wasn't ready to hear it until I was really ready to actually listen. My dad told me when I was a kid Brett, everything in your life is a choice, how you feel, how you act, how you react. And I said, you got to be kidding, Dad. Like, how can I choose how other people make me feel? And he said, oh, trust me on this one. And I, I still couldn't, like, fathom the thought that, oh, I can't control how other people make me feel. So 
when we went through that, I was really driven to listen when I was turning my life around. I went, hey, you know what? I can actually choose to not let that person that's bullying me bother me. I can choose that I have insecurities, yes, but I can choose how I act under them. So I can choose to treat people like garbage out of my insecurities and call them names and do whatever I need to feel to gain control, or I can help other people out of my insecurities. So every action that I make is a choice. And once I admitted to myself that I was a victim and I was creating my entire surroundings, like we are products of our own environment. So once I realized that I was creating everything in my life that was going wrong, that was my big stepping stone. Absolutely. It's amazing, isn't it? How many people's sense of self and self-esteem is actually based upon what they think other people think of them. But if you can break out of that and become self-empowered, which you clearly have, that makes such a difference, doesn't it? Yes, I couldn't agree more. I mean, people are capable of anything. They just have to believe it. And Brett, I also wanted to ask, you're an entrepreneur, an author, a radio and television host. You travel around giving keynote speeches. What have all those experiences taught you about the way that we, as a society, view mental illness? Uh, well, let's talk a couple of things, James. First and foremost, that when people choose to come together for a cause, there is no stopping them. So the human race is amazing and filled with passion and filled with devotion. And there are so many people in mental health that I have met through doing all of those things that you mentioned with businesses, books, TV, radio, that are just amazing individuals. And I have seen their contribution to mental health awareness, just like myself. And it's just been so inspirational and so amazing. So on a, on a whole, I see society as just this amazing heartfelt community of people that are working towards, uh, you know, the larger picture and, and the big goal of, of mental health stigma and getting rid of it. But on the other side, I worry sometimes because, you know, mental illness and mental health, all these celebrities are talking about it now, which is fantastic. I give them so much credit for being able to be in the media and be exposed and be uh, have so many you know, hundreds of thousands of articles written about them in the media and interviews to be able to have the courage to do that. But on the other side of things, I see and worry sometimes as a mental health advocate who really devotes their time and wants to make the stigma go away that it's become somewhat of a trend now, you know, like when uh, gluten-free diets came out. A lot of people didn't become gluten-free because they needed to. They became gluten-free because it was the cool thing to do or it was the trendy thing to do, right? So I worry in a way that sometimes mental health may be that phase where people are talking about it because celebrities are talking about it, not because they you know, necessarily want the stigma to go away because a lot of people are still ashamed and a lot of people still cannot come out of that. So what happens if, you know, we ever transition out of celebrities talking about it and it being this big thing in the news, I worry that it may be a trend where people discontinue to talk about it when all these big figures aren't talking about it. So that's a really big thing that I worry about with mental illness. And I also think that, all sorts of funding, not just government funding, uh, community funding, organizational funding, corporate funding. I think that those all really need to be increased for mental health. I mean, 
for every $1 that a company invests in their employees' mental well-being, they make $7 on that. So the return on investment is huge. And I think the return on investment for anybody that invests in mental well-being would be huge. It's unfortunate that, you know, there just aren't the resources right now to have have a lot of funding for a lot of things. Every time that I talk to a new organization, it's, oh, we don't have enough funding. And that really sucks because I think that it's something that should have enough funding. It should get the attention. It deserves all of the attention in the world and is one of the most important issues that we have because no matter what race, gender, religion, um, belief or anything that you are, no matter what kind of person that you are, you know, mental health and mental illness still applies to you and can still apply to you. So it covers the entire population. So it should be taken, you know, very seriously and should have where we should be working at getting more funding for that. You're so right, Brett, that struggling with mental health can happen to anyone at any time, in any situation, from the company director to everyone that works for them. So employers having a properly funded strategy to support people who struggle is crucial. You giving that message directly to organizations is so important. Yes, absolutely. I think that we all need to work at, and myself included. I mean, you know, I try to be the best that I can be about my mental health, but sometimes I I still find myself catching myself up in the stigma and then I correct myself. And it's not because I don't have the courage. It's not because I'm worried. It's just because it's become a habit, you know, and we need to break that habit. And also, Brett, just looking briefly at the stigma around mental health, which I know is a big issue for you, reducing that stigma so people can talk more freely about their own experiences is important. But I've heard people say that having opened up about it, they then don't necessarily get the support or help that they need. And part of it is resources. But I just wondered if listeners had communicated to you what they felt we should be doing differently to help and support those that do struggle. Of course. Well, I mean, I think that the first thing that I have to say is people that have reached out for your listeners that have reached out and maybe not gotten the reaction that they like, um, it's more it's probably more than what they're thinking. It's not necessarily because people don't have a reaction or they don't care. I think a lot of people don't give the reaction that people want because they don't know how they're not educated on mental health or mental illness. They don't know what to say when they go to their spouse and say, I have depression and I'm thinking about suicide or I have anxiety and I think I need to work on it. Or I think I need to go to counseling or can you help me through this? I don't know what it is. And if somebody's dismissive of that, I don't think that it's because they truly don't care. I, I really actually believe it's because they're just uneducated and unaware. So the first thing that we need to do to support people and encourage them to continue to talk about their mental health challenges is to get educated. The first step in all of this is to create more awareness and education for everybody so they can provide the right support to their loved ones or so they can get the right support themselves. And if you are with somebody who doesn't understand or you've talked to somebody who doesn't understand or who doesn't give you the reaction that you want, keep trying. You know, the biggest thing for me is that I keep trying. The only, there's, there's a handful of people that understand my mental health, my dad, my brother, my best friend and my spouse. Other than that, when I talk to people, they know what I talk about. They know that I'm a mental health advocate and they empathize, but they wouldn't necessarily know what to say to me. So I've built a a small group 
of people that I surround myself with that are supportive and really understand me. So when I say I have anxiety, they go, Hey, I'll get it. I'll give you your time. Or what do you need right now? And a lot of it is just getting the other person to ask what you need. So when you say to somebody that, and you can also teach people. So my spouse, he had no idea how to deal with my mental health when we first met. And in a sense, it was kind of comical because he'd be like, I'm sorry, Brett. Like, I don't know what you want me to say to you right now. I appreciate that you're open about it, but I have not a clue in the world what to say. And that's okay to admit too. But through this, I kept telling him, I said, sometimes just ask what I need. Or sometimes if you don't know what to say, just be there. So now we have this thing that when I have anxiety, he'll ask me why. And then I go, honey, you know, that's stupid because anxiety doesn't have a reason. It just shows up. (laughs) So now instead of asking why, he says, is there anything I can do right now? What do you need right now? So a lot of times it's just asking the other person what they need because then they can really reflect and go, hey, you know, I actually think that I probably need a little bit of quiet time or I need some me time. And then once we build that awareness, again, we still need to keep talking about it. It's kind of like having um, communication in a relationship, whether you're in a relationship with your mental health challenge or not, any kind of relationship, coworker, spouse, um, kids, friend, anybody. When we communicate with people, we don't like telepathically tell them what we're thinking. You know, so when we have a problem or we're facing an issue or we're feeling a certain way, we can't expect people to be mind readers. We have to expect to communicate with them what we're feeling. So everybody's got different touching points and everybody's got different trigger points and everybody's got their own way of hearing things. So if I say to you, James, the sky is blue. Well, to me, that means like, you know, a sky blue, like a blue sky blue. But to you, it might mean a royal blue. So even simple, single words like blue and red and mad and ang and sad could mean something so different to two different people that we need to work at clarifying what we mean. We need to continue the conversation and work at communicating and not expecting people to be mind readers. Our society, including myself, is guilty of thinking that people are just supposed to read our mind (laughs) about what we're thinking and how we're feeling and just all automatically know what to do. No, it's our jobs if we're struggling with a mental health challenge to communicate how we're feeling and tell people what we need. But a lot of people that struggle don't even know what they need. So they need to teach themselves about their own mental health challenge. And their loved ones also need to teach themselves how to properly support them. So it's kind of a more than one step system that we need to work on to continue people talking about mental health. That's so important, isn't it? And also the realisation for people that support for mental health difficulties may not need to be a professional. It might not need to be a psychiatrist or even medication. If we just have a professional response to this, we don't necessarily learn in the community how best to support our family or friends or co-workers. But if we learn to support each other's issues, that's good for all of society. Exactly. It's, it's working together. It's almost like creating your own little community between you and your loved ones where you understand each other and you properly communicate. And then eventually, like now my spouse and I, there, there's nothing we have to really work at. It's just kind of an automatic system that's in place that's on replay because anxiety never goes away. I'm always anxious, you know, and sometimes I have better weeks than others. 
just like you do. So I don't even have to ask for those things anymore. He's just, he just knows to do them because we've practiced it for so long and we've got this automated system in place with a really great understanding of each other. And same thing as the other close people in my life. It's just an automated system that works now, a well-oiled machine. And that's how we all need to be in our relationship. But we can't expect to get there without, number one, accepting and understanding our own challenges and number two, educating the people around us about what we need. Absolutely. That's really important. And Brett, if people listening wanted to know more about you and your work, is there a particular website they should visit? Yeah, absolutely. My website's uh, www.brettfrancis.ca. So that's B-R-E-T-T-F-R-A-N-C-I-S dot C-A. Brett, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you for all the efforts you make to raise awareness and challenge some of the misconceptions in mental health. And and thank you so much for everything that you do. Uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful that that we have a common goal. And, you know, I think that is just great. Thank you very much for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Well, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Brett for taking time out of her busy schedule to chat with me for the podcast. Please listen in to the Not Broken Radio podcast, which is available on iTunes. And as a reminder, Brett's website is brettfrancis.ca. Madden America News and Updates. I wanted to let you know that, in addition to listening to this podcast on MadinAmerica.com, you can listen in iTunes or using other services like Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, CastBox or Stitcher. Just go to your favourite podcast client and search for Madden America. The podcasts are also all available on YouTube. If you'd like to get in touch, give us feedback or suggest guests for future episodes, you can email us on podcasts at MadinAmerica.com. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit MaddenAmerica.com for more news, views, and updates.